Waiting is hard. Amazon Prime has trained us to expect everything in two days or less. But that's not how real life works. Hunters know that the secret to success is ready patience. You can't fall asleep in the blind. You've got to be quiet, but you also have to be ready to act quickly when the moment comes. This is an alert form of patience. It's stillness, but often in hunting season, a very cold stillness. So God often calls us into periods of waiting, both as individuals, but also as authors. The publishing process involves waiting, but that waiting doesn't necessarily mean sitting on your hands. In fact, it probably shouldn't mean sitting on your hands because what you do during your seasons of waiting are what set you up for success or for failure. Many authors who are struggling to get attention to their book or struggling to get readers to want to read their second book are struggling because they didn't put their season of waiting to good use. So how do you do that? How do you put that season of waiting to good use? How do you know what to work on and when to work on it and when to just rest? We'll find out in this episode of The Christian Publishing Show, the podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. And joining us today is someone who's experienced long periods of waiting in her publishing journey and yet has allowed those times to go to good use. She is a fantasy novelist with Enclave Publishing. Laura Richmond, welcome to The Christian Publishing Show. Hi, Thomas. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us your story. Why so much waiting? year that I graduated from college, I was like, what am I going to do with myself? And I decided to write a book. And in the process of writing that first book, I realized that that was where my true passion lay. When I sent it to my mom, she's German. She's very direct. She said, Laura, it's actually good. And so I thought maybe, maybe I could get published. But as Thomas often reminds us, you should not publish your first book first. I tried. I tried. <laughs> but your mom liked it. Your mom said it was good. <laughs> I know. I know. Again, I tried. I did the querying thing with that book. Did not get any interest. So at that point, again, I had a decision to make that I could either keep pouring into that book or I could decide to write more books. And I'm very glad that I went with the second option. I wrote another book. I created that one also, and I got some interest, but not actually necessarily from the people that I wanted that I thought it would do the best with. So I decided that I was going to write a fantasy novel, and that was The Mermaid's Tale. And I got to get published with Enclave, which was my dream. And so Mermaid's Tale was your third book that you wrote. Yes, it was third or fourth. I wrote another book kind of at the same time. So this is very common with successful authors. And it's one of those things that people don't realize when they're first getting into it is that, in fact, there's a term for it. And these are called trunk books. They're books that you write and you keep in your trunk because historically the books were on paper and the author would just put them in their trunk because they couldn't bear to delete or destroy the paper. <laughs> this is before deleting, but they didn't want to publish them because they weren't ready. And the purpose of those early books was to help you get better as an author. And what's interesting is that you kind of have to believe that the book is going to go somewhere to put the work into the book to get good enough. Uh, but then you have to be willing to put it aside later. If you go into it knowing that you're not going to 
this it's not a real book. You're not going to work hard enough on it. So you kind of have to trick yourself a little bit or find out about trunk books after you've written your first book or two. There's some authors who are anomalies where the first book does go somewhere. I have a friend actually at Enclave who she just published a book. It's a great book and it is her first she's ever written. But again, those are the anomalies. So I'm like, if you want to query your first book, you can try like I did, but it is very likely that it won't go anywhere. Even Brandon Sanderson has trunk books. <laughs> In fact, his whole company is named after his first trunk book that never got published, which was Dragon Steel. And so he planted that book. In fact, it talks about this in Leviticus. There's instructions on how to plant a tree. And the first three years of the tree, you're not supposed to harvest any of the fruit. Not that there's much fruit coming from a tree, but whatever does grow out of the tree, you're supposed to just leave it. So what happens to that fruit? Well, it falls to the ground and it rots. And you're like, but the fruit is rotting. It's like, yeah, but the fruit is also nourishing the soil for the tree to grow bigger and stronger. And it's not until the fifth year that you're supposed to eat the fruit of the tree. And, and God has a promise with this instruction that if you do this, you'll enjoy the tree for a long time and blessings. And I don't remember. It's all, it's all in Leviticus if you want the details. And for many authors, those first few books are like that early fruits from that tree. And if you allow them to fall on the ground and fertilize the soil, you may find yourself going back to those books and pulling a character. It's like, oh, this character was a really cool character. I'm going to lift the, this character out of that trunk book and place it in a new story. Or, oh, this idea for the story world is really cool. So it's not like the book was completely lost or it was just your skills, but You'll often find going back after many years, you're like, oh, wow, this book wasn't as good as I thought it was when I wrote it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And what I discovered was when I signed with Enclave, actually, it was, I think, 17 months until the release date. And when I first signed, I thought, that is such a long time. What am I going to do with all this time kind of thing? But now looking back, again, I'm so grateful for that time because I didn't know what I didn't know. Like I had time to really find a better groove in the publishing world. And I was able to find people who would want to read the book, which if you just jump into publishing and then you can't find your audience, in some ways, that's a really painful blow as a first time author. Yeah, you need to build that email list. Mm -hmm. This is what really sorts the wheat from the traff. I've found that you can find out how hard someone is working on getting the word out about their book by with just one question. And that one question is how many email addresses do you have on your email list? Because <laughs> if somebody won't trust you with their email, why would they trust you with their money? And it's a good test to see if an author knows how to build goodwill with readers, how to connect with readers. And it takes time, right? When you first started building your email list, it's your friends and family. And then you're like, well, gosh, how do I get a stranger on my email list? And suddenly you have to Die to yourself a little bit. You have to actually start blessing your subscribers. You have to write the kind of emails they want to read rather than the kind of emails that you want to send. You have to write a short story or give them some sort of reward for giving you a shot. Right? You have to maybe spend some money putting that short story in front of people. Like All of this takes time. And you don't want to give away your very first short story you've ever written, right? So you want to write some short stories to get good at it, right? All of this will develop you as an author, but it, it, take, it takes time, but it's worth it, right? It's a lot better to go into a book launch with two, three, five thousand emails of readers who are anticipating your book, right? That will lead to a successful launch. Rather, as you have a few hundred emails on your list, 
It's really hard. <laughs> it's a lot more work and it's much more likely to fail. So walk us through those 17 months. What were you doing during those 17 months? The first thing I was doing was actually writing more books. I love to write. That's what I like to do. And because I would like to have a career as an author, I wanted to use that time to build up some books so that I could go to Enclave and be like, hey, I have more stories for you. So that was part of it. Then as far as the email list went, I actually got something from Novel Marketing. I listened to an episode about story origin. And so I got on that and have been using that. I would say it has it has mixed success as far as open rate, right? So I have gotten people from it, which is great, but I do periodically go through and call out the people who never open my yeah. emails. Yeah. Have you tried uh, book sweeps or authors XP? I haven't yet, but again, I was just talking to a friend about this and I would like to. My marketing budget right now is a little bit limited. So I'm waiting till the new year. My husband's about to graduate, but I would like to do that. I, I have episodes on novel marketing on both of those services. The typical novel marketing lister who does a uh, book sweeps adds 300 to 600 email addresses to their list in a week or two in their high open rate, really excited readers and authors XP is about the same. And so if your list is any less than a thousand, it's an indication that you haven't spent enough money because <laughs> the sure. promo is like 50 bucks, 60 bucks. So for $120, you can do two, one on each service. And the kind of readers who are on those platforms are the kind of readers who want to be the first to read the new author. They're the kind of readers who are taking risks on brand new authors. They're not the kind of readers who are just reading the famous authors. So these are the early adopter types, exactly the kind of people that you want to build your email list with. And so, yeah, it, it takes some money, right? It means getting a job. And I understand that when you're in college, all your money is going into paying for college, but it is a solvable problem. And from my perspective, there's no excuse to have a small email list. It's just an indication that the the work's not being done. <laughs> you got to do the work. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And there's a lot of other ways to build an email list. I actually have a course on this. It's a part of Obscure No More called the Author Email Academy. And it covers not just how to grow your email list, but what to put in the emails, how to set up an onboarding sequence. Uh, we'll even soon have a section on how to clean your list, right? So Laura's having to clean off the dead weight because some people who fill out these contests to get a free short story, they put in their old Yahoo account that they never check, right? And so they, they're not ever actually reading your emails. So how do you sort the wheat from the chaff? There, there are ways to do that. Uh, I don't feel like you have to clean it off as much as you might think. I'm okay with a little bit of dead weight on an email list because sometimes those people will open. But if your open rates are dropping into the 30s or 20s, clearing off the dead weight can be uh, a good way to save some money <laughs> because you do pay out as your list gets bigger. So walk us through what else you were doing. So you're building your email list and you're writing more books. What else are you doing during that season of waiting? Yeah, absolutely. A big one, again, is building connections with readers and with other writers. So I went to several writing conferences during that time period, and that was great. It's a great way to get to meet people who love books, who love words. If you go to Christian conferences, to meet people who love Jesus and want to write books that will honor him and forward the kingdom, I would highly, highly recommend that. Again, it's money, right? But I would recommend that, that those personal connections, they really are extremely valuable 
because you're not living in an echo chamber then. You get other writers telling you what's working for them. You do get the opportunity for things like endorsements. You build those connections first, right? So then you have the ability to say, hey, would you be willing to put your name on my book? So that's a big one. Again, if you say, hey, I don't have the money to go to a writing conference, I would say that social media can work. Again, it really depends on how how you do it. But there is on Instagram, in the Bookstagram community, there actually are a lot of people who are there, who are interested in bookish content, who will actually engage with you on things like posts, reels, even direct messages, as long as you're not creepy and weird. So I personally would be like, you can always give it a try. So are you a bookstagrammer? Do you actually have a bookstagram channel? Yes. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just at L.E. Richmond. Yeah. So I have a guide on how to determine what social network will work for you. And Instagram works for people who are young and pretty. So if you're young and pretty, you're more likely to do well on Bookstagram. And if you look at the Bookstagrammers, almost all of them are young and pretty. So this is a really important filter as you're trying to determine as you're listening to advice. If you're not young, if you're not pretty, or if you're not really a woman, Instagram, Bookstagram is much, much harder to make work. But if you're those three things, and I'd also say videogenic and tech savvy, because you need to be able to know how to edit a video and how to put that together, how to handle the lighting, right? There's a lot of skills. But if all of those stars can align, Bookstagram can work. But for every one person I see being able to pull it off, I see a lot of others trying and they don't know why it's not working for them. And Instagram, more than any other social network, is really all about how you look. It's a very, like, very huge emphasis on that. And if you need to learn how to put on makeup better, there are Instagrammers who will show you how to do it. Who will show you how. (laughs) I mean, I would give the caveat that I don't know that it that I would say, oh, you're going to sell a million books from being on Bookstagram. I would not say that at all. What I would say is that, again, it can offer connections that like with email list is awesome, right? Emails are great and they work the best. But in some ways, there is always the question of being like, how do I find those people? And like you're saying, book sweeps works. Sometimes, again, something like Instagram, you can form some superficial connections that will help you on your road to that. Although another challenge is not knowing if these people are human or not, because many, many of the people you interact with on Instagram are really bots using GPT to interact with you (laughs) in ways that seem really (laughs) human. Uh, But when it comes down to buying your book, they're like, oh, I'm a bot. I don't have any money. (laughs) Yeah. And so they don't go on. So it's hard to sort out the humans from the non-humans on on social media. And one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so cautious, because it's hard to convert someone from Instagram to getting on your email list or to, to actually buying a book. And it's because many of those people aren't real people. Uh, some of them are, right? It's, it's, social media is not all bots, but the bots have gotten so much better in the last few years. It, I mean, there's been bots for 10 years. The, the bot problem is not new, but the bots now often have better grammar and better diction than the humans. Smarter, <laughs> smarter bots. <laughs> yeah, GPT is better at English than most humans are at English at this point, and it's only sure. getting better. And right now with GPT-4, you know, like craft me a dozen tweets about such and such. And then you can create an API that will feed those through your sock puppets. And you can very quickly have a thousand bots all talking about your book. Wow. Another way to use Instagram or book talk. So there's, I should explain some terms. So when Laura's saying bookstagram, 
That's not a different website. That's just a hashtag inside of Instagram. And the same with book talk. It's TikTokers talking about books. What I recommend for most people is not to try to become a TikToker or Instagrammer, because again, there's always going to be somebody younger and prettier and more media genic than you and somebody who's really addicted who's going to work harder than you because they're addicted and that's all they do and that person's going to win and you don't want to win you don't want to be the car, the dog that catches that car <laughs> but that person who's addicted you can pay her a 100 bucks to talk about your book to her ten thousand fans and that suddenly saves you all of the work of becoming a book talker and for a hundred dollars to be like yes thank you i need money <laughs> <laughs> so really big ones will cost thousands and thousands, but there's that kind of middle tier of books grammars and book talkers who don't have hardly any money, but they're working, 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 trying to grind to get something. And they do have a following, but it's not a massive following. And if they're a good fit for your book, it actually could be a really good investment. I think that's the whole thing is the good fit question, right? Because again, with book talk or bookstagram, right? Honestly, a lot of the books that go big on there are very secular and espouse a lot of things that Christian readers are not okay with. And so if you want to get it to in any way work, you have to find first what your book is, what that niche is for you, and also find clean readership. It's a lot smaller than the general population of Instagram or TikTok. But if you can actually find and connect with those people that's where it will work. If you try to be too generic, it's not worth your time at all. That's right. And there's an anti-Christian bias in a lot of the algorithms. In fact, I just noticed this in GPT. I was playing around with it. Because I'll sometimes use GPT to generate questions for interviews. I didn't for this interview. But (laughs) sometimes I'll be like, I'll ask GPT, you know, who is this person that I'm interviewing? And if the person's famous enough, it'll give me their bio. And I'll ask it who I am and it'll give me my bio. Uh, And that in seeding GPT with those kinds of questions before you ask the real questions helps it give you better answers. And I've noticed that recently GPT is no longer saying that I'm the host of the Christian Publishing Show. So it'll say that I'm the host of the Novel Marketing Podcast. It'll talk about how I'm the CEO of Author Media. And it will talk about how I hosted the Creative Funding Show and Liberty Buzzard, which are podcasts that I haven't done in years. But it now excludes Christian Publishing Show. (laughs) Like, like there's like, wow, right? It's like, it really is going out of its way. And this is another, like, dangerous social media. So these companies are very anti-Christian. And the AIs that they're building are anti-Christian AIs. And so they'll filter you out if you're not careful. Uh, and even if you are careful, they may still filter you out. They still <laughs> so, filter you out. <laughs> yeah, yep. you don't want to build your platform there. But if you want to visit and make efforts mm-hmm. to make connections, it can work. But the real question I would ask is, what is your next best alternative? And if you live in the middle of nowhere and you have no money, maybe you don't have a next best alternative. And connecting with Instagrammers or TikTokers really is your most useful activity. But getting a job and going to a writer's conference is often a better, better use of your time and money if you can make it work. Yeah. And playing off of that would be spend the time that you have learning about what that best marketing strategy for you is, right? So again, novel marketing, love it. Excellent, excellent podcast. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I have three little kids. But I do have time to listen to things, right? So like if they're playing in the background, I can wash dishes and listen to a podcast on marketing. And for me in my stage of life, that is what works, right? I think it is just a big question of being like, where are you in life and what will work for you to find those things 
that are actually going to be both profitable and create real connection between you and readers. So again, if that's books that you have time to spend reading marketing books, do that. Podcasts, if you have a long commute, or again, if you're at home, are great. Thomas hosts webinars, if you have time to be in that. Again, you can pay for courses online. There are lots of options, but I would definitely put some time at the start into figuring that out and spending some time on that. Yeah. And the earlier on in your career that you invest in that education, the better of an investment it is because you get to use that education for more books, right? <laughs> some yes. authors, they'll write five books before they'll learn some key element of craft or some key element of marketing. They're like, oh my goodness, if only I had learned this sooner. That's actually one of the most common pieces of feedback we get for the book launch blueprint because we have a lot of authors who will go through it for their fourth or fifth book and they realize mm -hmm. going through the course why their first books didn't sell because they didn't launch them or they didn't launch them well. And they're like, if only I'd have gone through this sooner. So the sooner in your career you do it, the better. And there's a hierarchy in terms of cost. So you have blog posts and podcast episodes, which are free. So that's the easiest kind of way to educate yourself. And then you have books. And a marketing book, that's 20 bucks, right? It's not a lot of money. <laughs> or if you request it at your library, it's free. And the audiobook is one credit on Audible's, $15. And then webinars sometimes have a cost, sometimes they don't. Most of mine are free because I use webinars as a way to build my email list, but I might have a premium webinar or often we'll just all have a Q&A webinar that's a part of Patreon, right? So for the patrons of my other podcast, Novel Marketing, I do a, a Q&A. It's basically a webinar every month where people ask me questions and I answer their questions live. And it says four bucks a month. That's really cheap. And then it gets more expensive, right? So an online course is pretty expensive. Those range between 50 bucks and you know some people charge thousands and thousands for an online course. And I would say probably the most expensive thing is either a really high-end course or a conference. So going to a conference, that's hundreds of dollars. It's a hotel. It's a flight. But the advantage of a conference is that you're not just learning, which is good, but you're also making in-person connections with other human beings, which you can't do any other way. <laughs> There's only one way to be in person with a human being, and that's actually to be in person with a human being. <laughs> so that's really valuable and be smart about what conference you're going to, right? If you're wanting to connect with other fantasy writers, realm makers is probably the, the place to go. But also going to the conference that's near you is better that potentially than the conference that's the perfect fit because a conference in your town is going to be way cheaper for you to attend than a conference across the country. Yeah, absolutely. And it depends on where you live, but people, if it's a smaller town, they'll be excited by a local author, right? So there will be that element of being like, oh, this person is from here, so I want to support them. That's right. Oh, and one other thing I should point out is starting a writer's group. So let's say you're in that small town in the middle of nowhere. Start a writer's group. Find the other writers in your town. Go to your local library, put up a flyer, reach out to the, your librarian, go on meetup.com. And maybe there's a group you can join, which is always better. But often you have to start the group yourself, especially post lockdowns, a lot of the groups died during the lockdown. Mm -hmm. So somebody has got to start the new group up. 
But that's so valuable. And that can also be really beneficial for your career. Ideally, you want people who are at kind of the same level of you in their career as you are. It can be really rewarding to work with a bunch of beginners if you're more advanced, but it's rewarding in a psychological and spiritual way, not yeah. as much in a market way. <laughs> but yeah, be a part of a writer's group is also really valuable. And if you run the group, it doesn't cost you money. It just costs you time. And speaking of money, one of my other thoughts in a waiting period would be to, if you can, start a book marketing fund. Because when you first publish a book, it's not generating income. Like, it's not. You're pouring money into it to hopefully have it do well and kind of launch off your other books. And eventually, hopefully you are making money. But again, you kind of need that nest egg a little bit to start with to pay for the things that will get your book in front of readers' eyes. That's right. In fact, what I would recommend is not just to create a fund like in an envelope, but to actually create a separate bank account that not only covers all of your book marketing expenses, but all of your publishing expenses, and that receives all of your publishing income. Because eventually, you're going to be a business in the eyes of the IRS, uh, even if you're just a sole proprietorship, which means that you can take tax deductions, right? So that $500 ticket for the writer's conference, now suddenly that's a tax-deductible purchase, and it helps on tax day when you have a separate account that is fully separate from your personal family expenses. It keeps it really clean and also prepares you for down the road when you create an LLC. As you become more successful as an author, the business burden <laughs> goes up a little bit. I do have a course on it with my CPA dad. I know we're talking a lot of my courses today. I have a dad who's a CPA. He's been working with authors for almost 40 years and I sat down with him and picked his brain for a long period of time. And we talk about business and taxes and all of that stuff. But even if you're just getting started, even if you're still a hobbyist in the eyes of the IRS, having that separate account is really helpful. And you can do it at your regular bank and you can set up a deduction, right? It's like every month I'm going to put 50 bucks, transfer it from a family checking account to my savings account or whatever. Work it out with your spouse ahead of time. And that way, <laughs> you're, you, whatever the number is, right? Maybe it's $100 a month or $500 a month, right? Different people have different amounts of money. But now you've got this fund and now you can make the decision of what should I spend this money on? What will give me the best return? And you don't ask, will something help? You say, how does this compare to my next best alternative? So should I buy a new computer for writing or should I buy a book sweeps promotion? Right? Like, well, what's going to be the most helpful? It's like, well, my current computer is broken. Like, okay, well, the new computer is critical. <laughs> I can't do anything without a working computer. We're like, oh, the new computer will be 10% faster. It's like, yeah, but is it going to help you write faster? Well, no. It's like, okay, maybe it'll get the new computer. So, so you navigate that. But having a little bit of money set aside is really helpful because it also keeps you from having to talk to your husband or wife about every single marketing purchase because mm -hmm. it's now it feels like it's coming out of family funds and it's this big surprise like oh i got a book launch and I all these expenses and like oh now we're having to make some big sacrifices or god forbid go into debt you don't want to do that don't go into debt for your book no don't don't do that <laughs> it's like going into debt to buy lottery tickets most people lose money in publishing and everybody loses money at the beginning and so you don't want to go into debt with the hopes that you'll be one of the few that makes a lot of money. Because people who do make money make a lot, but it often takes a lot of time to get there. And it, it gives more incentive to you to pour actual effort into stuff if you don't go into debt. Because then in your mind, you're like, I am trying to make money. I need to work harder, basically, rather than just take 
in some ways, a, an easier route, but just um, getting loans. That's right. And you go out and you get a part-time job, right? You're delivering pizzas or whatever, and that money is going into your book fund. It it gives you a new perspective, right? You're like, I'm not just delivering pizzas. I'm helping my future writing career because <laughs> having a little bit of money is so important because if you're the kind of person who only does the free stuff, you become the product. There's so many online companies that will take advantage of you if you're not paying money because they sell you to somebody else, right? The food is free for chickens in the chicken coop because they're the product being sold. So you don't want to be a chicken. You can combine two things. I have had a career as a door dasher and you can listen to podcasts while you are door dashing. <laughs> hot tip there. Yeah, Anyways. no, that's actually a really good point is that some jobs lend themselves well to writing uh, during the job or on the way to your job. So yes. Chris Fox, very famously, his day job, he was a computer programmer, but he would take the bus to work. And so for an hour on his way to work in the bus or on the train, he is writing and an hour back and he wrote his first novels on the train like that. <laughs> and that was his writing time. And it was actually really smart, right? He He's able to find a job that gave him that uninterrupted time that he could take the bus to. And you're like, oh, I would never take the bus. Like, would you if you could write? Like, well, yeah. actually, it sounds yeah. pretty good. Laptops have better batteries now than they did back in the day. <laughs> right, yeah. Emma Sinclair would write her books on an elliptical, which I don't have those skills, but I think she wrote on her phone going <laughs> on the elliptical. So. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And with dictation now, you can be, you know, walking dogs for people mm -hmm. in your neighborhood and dictating your book or listening to a podcast. There's a lot of ways to to maximize that time. Uh, now, Laura, what are some mistakes? If you could go back uh, and talk to your earlier self, what would you do differently? I feel like I've learned from so much stuff that it's almost hard to like bill it as a mistake of being <laughs> like, oh, this actually taught me something. Right. But I would say, again, with email list. If I look back now, I would have tried to pour more into the email list as an option because that is where it's at, as everyone tells us. So I would have poured probably more time and money into that. And then with like social media, I think a mistake I would say that I made was caring too much. Social media can be a useful tool, but if your heart is wrapped up in how many likes you're getting, it's just heartache and stress and pressure on your brain that doesn't need to be there. Again, in, in some ways, it's like, does that really matter? No, no, it doesn't. So there would be that. I would say, if you're going to a writer's conference, here's a hot tip, don't wait until the last minute to book all your stuff. That is my <laughs> unfortunate propensity that I would, again, not, not recommend. And if you're trying to save money, again, there will be early bird discounts and stuff if you actually get on that and go for it. And as somebody who is hosting his first conference in January, I will say, I happily give away those early bird discounts because it really helps with the planning to know ahead of time how many people are going to be there. And so you're also helping the conference out when you buy your tickets sooner rather than later. But yeah, back to the social media thing. One thing I did that I found was really helpful is I went into my Facebook settings and I turned off notifications for likes. Mm. And that actually basically breaks the addictive element of Facebook because yeah. getting notified, the little red number that somebody has mm -hmm. liked your content. And I turned it off inside of the Facebook app. So if you like something that I post, I never see it. 
unless I go to that post, it'll say, you know, it's got 20 likes or whatever, but I don't get that red number. And just that one change, which you can do in the Facebook settings, you have to dig for it. They hide it, but you Google it first how to do it and then <laughs> do the walkthrough. Turning off like notifications dramatically reduces the noise and it reduces the addictive interaction and the, the signal, the actual comments, which is what really matters, you still get notified for. So you know, if somebody comments, I still get the red number. Of course, I only check Facebook every, you know, three or four weeks. <laughs> I may or may not see it. But, <laughs> but most authors are on social media more than I am. Mm-hmm. And that one small change, which I believe you can also do in Instagram, it, it's your first step to getting free from social media. Because I will say, you can be a successful author living off of your writing without doing any social media. In fact, of the authors that I work with who are making a living on their writing, almost none of them have social media as a part of their marketing mix. The authors who tend to be using social media are the ones who are trying to get started. There are some authors who do social media still, but it's not a part of their marketing. So a good example is Larry Correa. He's making a living with his writing and he's very active on social media, but he never talks about writing on social media. He's yelling at people about politics. (laughs) 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 And he is full on embracing the Twitter political fights. Uh, But for him, it's his way of venting and it doesn't help him sell books. In fact, he'll launch a book and not even mention it on his Twitter. He sees his Twitter activity as this like completely separate activity than his marketing activity. And I feel like as you become more successful, it's important to see social media as like a thing you do for fun, but not yeah. a thing that's going to help you sell more books. But if it's your only option, it's better than nothing. But working to build up alternatives, finding that thing that's better than social media can be really helpful if you're wanting to actually make this an ongoing concern, <laughs> make some money. And I think that it's always good to remember basically within marketing, there's some marketing that's impersonal, like ads. But then a lot of it boils down to, again, can you create a real connection with someone? And if a friend tells me this book was great, I am a hundred times more likely to buy it than if I just see something pop up in Instagram or on Amazon or anything. Again, it will be that personal interaction, right? That's the big question always in being like, if on social media, you're like, I really am connecting with people truly, like I'm have one-on-one connections with people, I'm really fostering that, then I would say, hey, that's worth it for you. Or if you say, like Thomas said, if you can say, I could make better connections and more connections in my email list or by starting a writer's group in my town, then that's where you should be spending the time. It's the personal note that I would stress. And if you want more of those you know, high quality personal recommendations of one person recommending your book, to another, the most important thing is the quality of the writing, right? You've got to write that the kind of true. book yes. that someone recommends, regardless of whether they like you or not, right? Maybe like, I don't really like Laura, but man, her book is so good. You got to read it, right? Like, there's all these people who love to hate in J.K. Rowling, but they're still buying and reading Harry Potter. Read Harry Potter. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. they, every time she gets canceled, her sales go up because people are reminded, <laughs> oh, that's right. I do like her books, even though I don't like her. Or, you know, and some people like her, right? It's not like she has no friends. But mm-hmm. if your writing is good enough, 
then it doesn't really matter all the rest of it. And this goes back to what do you do in that season of waiting, right? It's writing more books. The best way yes. to get better at writing is to write books and to uh, submit those books to honest critique where you're getting that hard to hear f- feedback of how it can be made better. And the more writing you do, the more books you write, and the more you learn how to write for an audience, write the kind of book somebody already wants to read rather than changing somebody into the kind of person who wants to read the book you wrote, which is a big worldview shift. It requires dying to yourself. And that first book you wrote, you wrote for yourself, and that's why it's dead doomed. (laughs) (laughs) That's why it needs to go in the trunk. You (laughs) got to find that reader. You need to write the book that the reader needs, not the book that you wanted to write. But as you learn to do that, your books will get better as judged by the reader. And that's what mm-hmm. is so important. And so writing more books, and it also helps with the money, right? Because the more books you write, the more books you have to make money on. Right? Very, yes. very few authors are able to make a living off of a book a year. Right? Most of the authors who do this for a living are writing multiple books a year, which means they've written enough books where they've learned to write faster. Because the other thing that happens, the more books you write, the faster they are to write. It's not uncommon for someone's first book to take them five years to write, 10 years to write, but their 10th book may only take them a few months and their 30th book may only take them a month. Right? Like you get better at this. You get Maybe. faster at this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's that. And with the writing more books, the other thing is that what I discovered <laughs> and should have known in the traditional publishing industry is that there are seasons where there's a lot of hustle, basically, where like it's you're in the middle of edits and that's what you're doing. Or, you know, again, cover reveal, launch day, all that stuff that it's like, okay, you're hustling right now. And then there's these waiting seasons. And if you use that time that you're waiting to work on writing books, then you won't feel compelled to be like, oh no, my deadline's coming up and now I have to write under pressure and that makes it harder and worse. So yeah, I would take advantage of that time. That's really good. When I was in college, I, think I took a summer class and it was a whole college course in like three or four weeks. It was really intense, but I actually found it easier than a regular semester of school because while it was intense, the assignments were spaced out, right? It wasn't like I had two classes that both had a paper due on the same day. That I found to be really stressful, but you know, oh, I have a paper due on Tuesday and another paper due on Thursday. It's like, well, Okay, I'll do the, the first one first, and then I do the second one second. So your point is really well taken that for everything there is a season. And there are seasons when you have a lot of external pressure to get things done. And those are the easier seasons to be disciplined because we're trained in public school to respond to external pressure. But there's other seasons, seasons of waiting, when if you don't have the internal pressure, you'll just sit on your hands and watch Netflix. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and that whole season will go by and you missed your opportunity to improve your craft by reading books on craft. You missed your opportunity to improve your marketing by listening to podcasts about marketing. And now you're trying to learn and do at the same time and you're stressing yourself out. Someone might listen to this and think, oh my goodness, you just mean I have to work all the time and I can't stop and that's never going to be productive for me. And that's not what I would be saying at all. I'm like in those waiting seasons, again, I would be wise in how you use your time. But obviously... God set it up in the world to have a rest day every single week. And in the nation of Israel, there were Sabbath years. And so I would be intentional about what you're doing, right? If you're sitting watching Netflix just because you're not thinking about what you want in your future, that's not a good use of your time. 
if what you're saying is, hey, Netflix actually really helps me to decompress for this one day a week, and then I can get back into working toward my goals, then I would do that. I would also say that part of that waiting process, what can be productive is reading good books. It can be both productive and relaxing if you love to read, which most writers do, to say, hey, I'm going to read some books that have great characters and great plot that are similar in genre to me or even aren't, but see that whole gamut and spend that time in a way that will relax and recharge me, but also ignite those like creative juices, get those flowing. And the more books on craft you read, the more books in your genre that you read, the more you'll learn from them, right? You read a book on dialogue and then you read a book by the best-selling author in your genre and you start to notice how that author does dialogue. You're like, oh, that was really well done. It was like, oh, I, you start to understand why this author is successful because <laughs> if you don't understand why the top authors are the top authors, you'll never be able to become a top author yourself. And so combining those books on craft with your competing books or similar books, really will help educate you. And reading classics every once in a while will also, you know, like, oh, I see what Dickens is doing here. This this is a good use of foreshadowing. I didn't never notice this the first time. And so you start to see how the sausage is made as you learn how sausage is made. So Laura, what final advice or encouragement would you have for Christian authors who feel like they're stuck in a season of waiting? I would encourage them that honestly, any time in my life that I've tried to push something into happening and tried to push it and hurry it up, that's never really worked very well. And as Christians, we do believe that God has plans and that he uses things. And so I would encourage them to again say, hey, I'm a doer. I believe in being proactive. That's what you and I are talking about, how you can be pre proactive during that season of waiting. But I also would really try to lean into your relationship to God and say, God, I believe that this time, that it is for something. Like, help me to see what this time is for and why you're giving me this space. What's this space for? Rather than just viewing it as a hindrance and an inconvenience. Laura Richmond writes under the name L.E. Richmond. Her debut novel is The Mermaid's Tale. If you want to go on an undersea adventure. We'll have a link to that book in the show notes. If you're the kind of person who loves mermaids and you want to read a Christian fantasy about a mermaid, you should take out The Mermaid's Tale by L.E. Richmond. And Laura, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you so much for having me. Our featured patron today is Marlene Bagnall, author of Write His Answer, a Bible study for Christian writers. This book has practical help and encouragement for overcoming self-doubts, writer's block, rejection, procrastination, and more, with scriptures to study, questions to apply the message to your life, and space to write your responses. So it is a Bible study for writers that you can write in. If you like writing, this is a Bible study you should check out. The Christian Publishing Show is a production of AuthorMedia.com. Our guest today is Laura L.E. Richmond. Audio editing is by William Umstadt. The blog post is by Shauna Lettler. The producer is Lloyd Christine. And I am Thomas Umstadt Jr., your host. You can find the blog post version of this episode at ChristianPublishingShow.com slash 146. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.